Lord, I do thank you for everyone who's come here this morning to hear your word, and I pray that there would be something for each one of us. Lord, I also pray for Pastor Bill, that you'd continue to make him, uh, or keep him safe over there, that they would continue to be effective, that the people they're ministering to would be receptive to your word and what you have for them, uh, and that they would be continually be encouraged. For everybody who is here, Lord, uh, whatever trials or tribulations we may be going through, Lord, we know that we can lean on you for the strength through those things. Lord, we thank you again for this morning and what your word has to say. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> Excuse me. My son, oldest one, wished me to open in a joke. <laughs> Why was Noah playing cards on the ark? Because he was standing on the deck. If you, if you would open your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 10. Zechariah. Zechariah is a post-exilic prophet. That means after the return of the Jews from Babylon, it was post-exile. He is one of three books that are called post-exilic, the others being Haggai and Malachi. So the Jews returned from Babylon after Cyrus the Great of Persia. And this is a little review because we haven't uh, been in Zechariah for several months. Cyrus the Great of Persia sent out a command for the Jews to return to their homeland and to rebuild their temple. And the Jews, even though they had this approval from Persia, they're met with a lot of hostility, they're met with a lot of trials in that surrounding region from Samaritans and just uh, weather problems and all these things that are affecting them. And so what happens is they get discouraged. Now, they're able up to a certain point to lay the foundation, get it all set, it's all good. And just with the trials that they're receiving, they go, you know what, it's, it's, this is a little hard. Let's not do this anymore. And so they quit. And they quit for 15 years. The prophet, prophet Haggai then comes on the scene. And within a month of his admonishing the people to rebuild the temple, the temple work starts again. And that's a record it seems like when God asks people to do something, usually it takes a lot longer than that. It took Moses 40 years. It took Haggai to encourage the people 30 days. Now, after Haggai comes on the scene, he gives two different prophecies, and then Zechariah comes on the scene, and then the both of them work together to encourage the people to rebuild the temple. And while Haggai's focus is primarily on the temple, Zechariah's focus is mainly on where their hearts are, because they started 30 days but their bodies started, their mind and their heart weren't there yet. So Zechariah encourages them to get back on track and to repent, and that's in chapter 1. And also in chapter 1, we see this vision of, a horses, of horses in myrtle trees, and myrtle trees are usually symbolic of Israel. And one of the people on the horse in the middle of the myrtle trees is an angel of the Lord, or in this case, a precursor, or Jesus Christ is the angel of the Lord. So Jesus is in the midst, or the Messiah is in the midst of his people. Now when we get to chapter 2, he's giving them a vision of the temple being measured and the city being measured. And the point of that is, only about 50,000 of 
however many hundreds of thousands of Jews that were exiled to Babylon actually returned. Those are the ones who forsook everything, left their homes, their businesses to come to rebuild a, basically a pile of rubble in the city. So 50,000 returned. And so the city wasn't really inhabited at the time. What was happening was they were living outside the city and they were going into the city to do the work. So he encourages them and says, look, you see what the city is now. Let me measure it. And he measures the city in this vision. And the city is so big. And he says, don't worry about the city. I'm going to be able to fill it to overflowing. And so God's encouraging them, don't look at current circumstances again. Look to the future I have. Now, chapter 3, Joshua the high priest is taken. And he's accused by Satan of being imperfect, essentially. But God says, yeah, I know he's imperfect. But he's a brand plucked from the fire. He's something that I'm going to use specially. He's something I've got... I've got something chosen for him. Now, chapter 4, we learn that it's not by our human cleverness or our human might, but by the power of the Spirit that we're able to accomplish things for the Lord. Zerubbabel, again, experiencing resistance as they're rebuilding the temple. Even though he was putting forth a great deal of effort, they were weary, the process was long and drawn out, and they're basically like, you know what, I don't want to do this anymore. And a lot of times we have the same thing. We go, okay, I want to do this for the Lord. But a lot of times we want to do it in our own strength instead of the strength with which God's providing. And the Lord is saying, look, it's not by your strength. It's going to be by the power of the Spirit. Now, chapter 5, we have two different visions. We have the first of a flying scroll with the commandments on two different sides. And basically the scroll represents a future unknown where Israel will be judged according to the law of God. And we're not really clear on that. Uh, it says Israel's to be judged, but it's not clear on the time uh, when that may be or which judgment that it will be. The second vision, which is probably not related, is of a woman in a basket with a lead lid on it who is carried away to Babylon and what would appear to be a house of temple or worship. And the vision seems to indicate that Israel came back from Babylon with a spirit of commercialism or materialism And that was distracting them from worshiping God as they should. Now, chapter 6, four horses we have going out different directions into the world with the gist of the vision that God is going to judge the Gentile nations for their sins, specifically Babylon in the north. Now, the second half of this chapter, it ends with the prophecy of the branch, which is another name for the Messiah. And it's found several times in the Old Testament, always relating back to the Messiah who would come. Now, four men had come from Babylon at this time of Zechariah with silver and gold. And that silver and gold was subsequently made into a crown. And it was placed on the head of the high priest, Joshua at the time, which was unheard of because in the law, no one could be a priest and a king. And again, this was the foreshadowing of Christ, who was not only priest and king, but he was also prophet. He fulfilled all three roles. Chapter 7 takes place two years after chapter 6. And the subject is, what tradition should we follow? Now, Zechariah makes it clear that it's never about tradition. And again, we've heard, I've heard this mentioned and taught many times. And it's always good because too many times we get caught in a traditional rut. We follow traditions. We don't follow a relationship with God. And the actions that we need to do need to please him and have nothing to do with specific rituals. Now, chapter 8 is where we see the phrase, this is what the Lord Almighty says. 
And he uses it nine times in this chapter. And he uses it 16 times in the whole book. And it talks about God's sovereignty, his control over the nations, his control over the world, his control over Israel, how he's got everything in his hand. And they don't need to worry about, again, everything that's going on. And this is like an overarching theme in the book. He's continually talking about it. Look, all these things, but I've got it. You don't need to worry about it. Now, chapter 9, this one is concerned with the future. He's been talking about their present most of the time right now, dealing with the things they're going through, their circumstances, how they need to rely on him, get away from tradition, be filled with the Spirit. But chapter 9 looks forward to the future. And we see in verses 1 through 8, Alexander the Great coming through the promised land from the north, basically administering God's judgment on these nations who had done wrong to Israel. And then we get to chapter, I'm sorry, verse 9 of chapter 9. And here we have a prophecy of the first coming of the Messiah, of him riding upon a colt into Jerusalem. And I believe the reason for that is that we are meant to compare the comings of two kings. One is Alexander the Great. Now, Alexander the Great came with great pomp. He rode a white horse. He had a large army behind him when he approached Jerusalem. Now, he didn't destroy Jerusalem, mainly because the high priest came out and said, look, you're in the book of Daniel. This is what Daniel says about you. This is what you're going to do. And when his commander, one of his sub-commanders said, hey, why aren't we just destroying the city like we did everything else? He said, you know what? I had a dream, and in this dream, these people from this city came out and approached me. He said, I'm going to leave them alone. And essentially, Alexander the Great had a great, uh, I don't know. I don't know if he had a great respect, but he, he basically let people worship how they wanted to worship. He didn't force them to follow any Greek customs. He did want them Hellenized or following culture, but he let them worship how they wanted to worship. And so he left Jerusalem alone. But we see how Alexander came with a great army, with great pomp. And then you see how Jesus came, how he was going to come. He came lowly on a donkey in humility. Now you can also look at Alexander the Great. After he'd conquered the known world at his time, he essentially died in a drunken stupor at a party. Jesus died selflessly for the sins of the world. Two kings came two different ways. One died selfishly, one died selflessly. Now in verses 10 to 17, we essentially have a partial description of some of the events of the second coming, how he fulfills his promises to rescue them, and the prosperity that will come with the millennial reign. So chapter 9 is the first part of Zechariah's message and is continued in chapters 10 and 11. So this is a three-chapter section. So chapter 10, we're going to begin. Verses 1 and 2. Ask the Lord for rain in the springtime. It is the Lord who sends thunderstorms. He gives showers of rain to all the people and plants of the field to everyone. The idols speak deceitfully. Diviners see visions that lie. They tell dreams that are false. They give comfort in vain. Therefore, the people wander like sheep, oppressed for lack of a shepherd. So many people in ancient Israel, they had minimal to no irrigation system in place. In Egypt, where they had come out many years earlier, uh, they had an irrigation system from the Nile River. Now, the Jordan, they had the Jordan, but it wasn't as big as the Nile. It wasn't as effective as the Nile. So what they did is they relied on the rains that came. 
They relied on the rains in autumn and spring to water their crops. Now, the autumn was called the former or the early rains, and the spring rains were called the latter rains. Now, the early rains were what prepared the soil for receiving the seed, while the latter rains basically filled out the crops for harvest, made them big and bushy and, you know, you know plentiful. Now, you jump down, and it says idols. Now, the ancient Hebrew word for idols here is teraphim. And it was a, mo- uh, a common household idol. Uh, if you've ever seen um, Gladiator, he has these little idols. He carries them around. They're of his family. But it's similar to that. They're a little bit bigger, but they basically have these in their house. And they would pray to them for prosperity, rain, whatever floated their boat at the time. And they would also have these diviners come in and uh, consult the spirits of the future and God is warning them, and he's also pointing out their past here. He's warning them that there's never any help from these idols. It always appears that way. Now, Baal, who was one of the false gods that they worshipped, was known for being the one who brought rain. So when Elijah in 1 Kings tells Ahab, there's not going to be any rain on the earth until my word, he's essentially saying, my God's bigger than yours, and he's not going to let yours work. And that's what happened for three and a half years until God told Elijah to pray for rain. And God doesn't want them to be consulting idols, which would be vain and pointless. So God wants them to ask. And a lot of times we're afraid to ask God for things. We say, God, I want to ask. I don't want to be presumptuous. I don't want to ask for anything. But there's many times in Scripture where God is asking us to ask him. Uh, he says in Second Chronicles 1.7, he's talking to Solomon. He says, ask for me something. What do you want? And Solomon asked for wisdom. He could have asked for anything, but he asked for wisdom. And then God, in talking to King Ahaz of Judah, says, what do you want? I will give you any sign that you want to show you that I'm going to destroy these armies that are surrounding Jerusalem right now. And Ahaz and basically false humility says, I'm not going to test the Lord in anything. And so Isaiah says, well, God's going to give you a sign anyway. And we get to the New Testament. And there's several other places in the Old. But Jesus says, ask and it will be given. And he says, whatever things you ask in prayer, believing you will receive. And James says to ask for wisdom and faith. And then he clarifies in James 4 that we're to ask Uh, with the right motive, not to ask amiss. If we ask with the right motive, according to God's will, we're going to get what he wants us to have because we're going to be in accordance with what God's will is. So God just wants us to ask, is there something that God's put on your heart? Maybe he wants you to step out in faith and ask for it. Now, again, it's not going to be something selfish. It's going to be something uh, selfless. As Jesus would have been selfless, he wants you to ask for something. Maybe it's the salvation of a friend and you're, no, 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 I don't want to do that. Or maybe it's, you know, an open door at work. I've asked for that many times, and slowly over the course of the many years I've worked where I work, you know, a door will be open to witness to someone here. And maybe it's only five minutes, but those little doors that open, open to bigger doors and different doors to where you can share your faith. And that's just one example. There are other things. And Hebrews 4.16 wants to remind us that we also need to come boldly to the throne of grace. And that's where we obtain mercy and grace in our time of need. So we need to make sure we're asking and not to turn aside to our own uh, 
ideas of what we think we should do, but uh, follow God's wisdom in the matter. Now, for the rest of chapter 10 and 11, we're going to see a contrast between Israel's shepherd, the good shepherd, and the false shepherds that plague her or have plagued her in the past. And they will actually continue to plague her in the future. Now, verses 3 through 4 says, My anger burns against the shepherds, and I will punish the leaders for the Lord Almighty will care for his flock, the people of Judah, and make them like a proud horse in battle. From Judah will come the cornerstone, from him the tent peg, from him the battle bow, from him every ruler. And you can look throughout the history of Israel and Judah, and you can see that they were plagued with false prophets, teachers that were leading them astray, uh, priests who were in it for their own gain, political spiritual leaders of all kinds, kings, prophets, priests. They were plagued by them. It seemed a lot of times there were more bad ones than good ones, but the good ones always stood the test of time and God's word because God's word never fails. And if you look at their history, right at the beginning of the nation's exodus, there was Korah versus Moses. And Korah said, you know what? We don't need to follow Moses. Everybody here is a child of God. And God said, no, no, I've chosen Moses. And so they ran a test. And obviously Moses came out on top because Korah was sucked into the ground. Now in the book of Kings, there was a prophet named Micaiah. And this is actually my favorite story in Kings. Ahab is looking to go to battle with Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah. And Ahab says, Jehoshaphat, will you go to battle with me? Jehoshaphat says, sure. Uh, Let's inquire of the Lord. And so they get out these prophets, and one of them, his name is, I'm probably pronouncing it wrong, Chianana. And he says, go, you're going to succeed in battle. He takes this uh, helmet of a skull off of his head. It's got horns on it. He says, you're going to gore your enemies with in battle. And Jehoshaphat goes, isn't there a prophet of God we can ask? And Ahab does what a lot of people do when there's something they don't want to hear. They avoid it. He says, there is one guy. His name is Micaiah, but he never says anything good about me. And Jehoshaphat says, you know what, don't say that. Let's bring him in anyway. So Micaiah comes in and he says, go, the Lord has prospered you. And Ahab goes, you know, this is the first time you've ever said anything like that. I'm going to make you swear on the Lord that you're telling me the truth. So Micaiah goes, I had a vision and it said, who's going to deceive Ahab to go into battle that he might perish? That's my vernacular. And Ahab says, see, I told you he just prophesies bad continually about me. And so he locks Micaiah up and he says, Don't let him out of prison. Feed him with the bread and water of affliction until I return. And Micaiah says, well, essentially, I guess I'm staying in prison because you're not going to return. And that's another example. And there's, there's other examples too. Now, the Lord is always punishing these people, these bad leaders, and he himself cares for his flock with the good leaders that he raises up. But how will he care for his flock ultimately? And then it says that he will also turn them into war horses. Now, how is he going to do that? The leader will come from the tribe of Judah itself. And every legitimate leader from the tribe of Israel was from the tribe of Judah. And even though God is displeased with his shepherds, he's displeased with how they've led his people. 
he's going to raise up the perfect shepherd from and for the nation of Judah. And we learn about this shepherd in verse 4. Now we learn that he is a cornerstone, he is a tent peg, he is a battle bow, and he is the ruler of every people. Now we know the most common one of these is cornerstone. And Jesus is called the cornerstone in Isaiah, in Psalms, in Matthew, in Acts, in First Peter. Jesus is the cornerstone. And we look at the tent peg. And in Isaiah 22, verses 23 and 24, it talks about Eliakim being this tent peg. But if you look at the whole passage, Eliakim is a foreshadowing of the Messiah, and which means Jesus is this tent peg. He's the one who holds all things securely together. It says Jesus is the battle bow. And a bow in those times symbolized strength. And where do we derive our strength if not from Jesus? And then it says Jesus is the ruler over every people. And we see this in Revelation 19.16. So we see, and again, Zechariah is full of these foreshadowings of the Messiah. Now verse 5, he says, Together they will be like warriors in battle, trampling their enemy into the mud of the streets. They will fight because the Lord is with them, and they will put the enemy horsemen to shame. Now, just as when Judah will fight like warriors because the Lord is with them, so are we. We are God's people. We don't need to back away in fear when God gives us an opportunity to share. We don't need to back away in fear when someone says, oh, you're a Christian. I've been watching these videos on YouTube, and I watch them a lot. They're apologetic videos. They're by Frank Turek, and some of them are little cartoons just to kind of get points across of how to defend your faith. And one of them was, and I watched it yesterday, this guy walks up and he goes, oh, well, you're reading your Bible in a condescending way. He goes, well, yeah, I'm reading my Bible. But in this age of technology, how can you trust something so old? Why would you be reading that when we have so much better things to read now and do now? And it was kind of like an inroad for this person in the video to share his faith with this other guy and address the guy's skepticism. And it was interesting. It was a good video. But... We are told in Ephesians 6 to be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. And in 2 Timothy 1.7, that God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. So that when we come across people who doubt, we come across people who are skeptical. If we've studied and shown ourselves approved in whatever capacity, God's going to give us an answer to answer these people. And maybe we don't know an answer, but we can confidently say, you know what, I don't know the answer to that, but I'm going to find out for you. Now in verse 6, I will strengthen Judah and save the tribes of Joseph. I will restore them because I have compassion on them. They will be as though I had not rejected them, for I am the Lord their God, and I will answer them. In verse 7 through 10, the Ephraimites will become like warriors, and their hearts will be glad as with wine. Their children will see it and be joyful. Their hearts will rejoice in the Lord. I will signal for them and gather them in. Surely I will redeem them. They will be as numerous as before. Though I scatter them among the peoples, yet in distant lands they will remember me. They and their children will survive and they will return. I will bring them back from Egypt and gather them from Assyria. I will bring them to Gilead and Lebanon and there will not be enough room for them. There will not be enough room for them. And this kind of gives you a picture back into chapter 2. When he said he was going to measure the city and it was going to be so full he couldn't imagine it. This kind of translates back to that. He says, there's going to be so many people coming back to the promised land. It's not going to be able to be, it's going to be overflowing. 
Now, in verse 8, it says in the NIV, I will signal for them. In the King James Version, it says, I will hiss for them and gather them. Now, this hiss is kind of like a whistle, like when a shepherd whistles for his sheep. So the Lord is going to do for Israel, he's going to gather them from the ends of the earth, and he's going to whistle them as a shepherd does his sheep. He is the shepherd. And we know that uh, Jesus said, I know my sheep and my sheep hear my voice. And they're going to know the Lord's whistling or the Lord's calling them back to the land. Now, this right here describes Israel coming back in a state of belief. Now, we know that from 1948 until now, many Jews have felt the call in their heart for some unknown reason to go back to Israel. Now, this is in a state of unbelief for most of them. And so this is a partial fulfillment of what's happened or what has happened now is a partial fulfillment of this. But the ultimate fulfillment will be when Christ comes the second time and they're going to see the Messiah. Now, it says some of the places that Israel is going to be gathered from are Egypt and Assyria. Now, modern countries that make up Egypt are going to be current Egypt and then Libya to the west and Sudan to the south. So it encompasses an area like that and there have been Jews that have come from that area. Now, it also says Assyria. Assyria encompasses, or ancient Assyria encompasses, Syria, Turkey, Iran, and Iraq. Now, I believe that's literal, but I also believe it's a precursor to, or a foreshadowing of the Jews that have been scattered all around the world. It's not just those areas, it's the Jews that have been scattered everywhere. Because Assyria was where they were scattered when the northern kingdom was taken away, and Egypt was where they were first imprisoned and in servitude. I think from all those places, wherever they've been in servitude or wherever they were scattered, God is going to draw them back. And again, his sheep hear his voice. And I'm positive that some of those who have gone back, even nowadays, some of them will become believers. Some of them will will have faith. Not all of them. Now, verse 11 and 12 They will pass through the sea of trouble. The surging sea will be subdued and all the depths of the Nile will dry up. Assyria's pride will be brought down and Egypt's scepter will pass away. I will strengthen them in the Lord and in his name they will live securely, declares the Lord. Again, Assyria and Egypt, both the primary countries that brought Israel low into servitude and scattered them. Those two countries are going to cease to exist as it was in that day. Now, chapter 11 is next, and honestly, I think this is probably my favorite chapter in the book. Now, it begins verses 1 through 3. Open your doors, Lebanon, so that fire may devour your cedars. Wail, you juniper, for the cedar has fallen. The stately trees are ruined. Wail, oaks of Bashan. The dense forest has been cut down. Listen to the wail of the shepherds. Their rich pastures are destroyed. Listen to the roar of the lions. The lush thicket of the Jordan is ruined. There are two prevailing views on this. Excuse me. The first, this is a picture of what happens when conquering armies devastate the land. Since this is written after the Babylonian captivity, it has to refer to another army that's going to come and devastate the land. This is also 
not going to be referring to the Greeks because Alexander the Great did not devastate the land. He let them go. So there's one, only one other army after that that's actually done that and devastate the land. And that's going to be the Roman army uh, in 70 AD, or 66 to 70 AD. <clears throat> and that was when they entered it to put down the Jewish rebellion. Thank you. <clears throat> Invading armies usually entered from the north, which is Lebanon. And since the west was the Mediterranean and the east was the Jordan and the Sea of Galilee, Lebanon, uh, they would have come through Lebanon. Now, Lebanon was also famous for their cedar trees. It's something that's mentioned numerous times in Scripture. And the invading armies would have started with the destruction of what was most valuable, and that would have been a cedar. Uh, it's still a valuable tree today. But there's, they would be saying, ultimately, since the cedars are destroyed, the most valuable one, what's going to save you, you lesser trees? What's going to save you from destruction? And that's the first view. And it's a good view, and it certainly makes sense, and it does fit. Now, the second view is that the Jewish temple was often referred to as a place of cedar or as the house of cedar in 1 Kings 5, 5 through 6. And if this is the case, then verse 1 and 2 alludes to the future destruction of the temple, which was currently being built during the time of Zechariah's prophecy. In verse 3, it says the wailing shepherds are the false shepherds who led the nation of Israel astray and are wailing because their glory, the temple, was destroyed. And the latter part of verse 3 would be the destruction of the Jordan Valley. Now, if you remember with me that the shepherds of Israel in Jesus' day were the Sadducees and the Pharisees primarily, uh, also the scribes. Now, they had their differences. The Pharisees... Uh, in religious matters, the Pharisee, I'm sorry, the Sadducees were more conservative in one doctrinal area, which is a literal interpretation of scripture. They didn't believe in uh, the raising from the dead and those kind of things. Uh, the Pharisees, on the other hand, gave equal tradition to what was called the oral tradition, which was an explanation of scripture, how the rabbis taught it. Uh, the Sadducees denied an afterlife. They, they held that the soul perished at death, but the Pharisees did believe in an afterlife and in reward and punishment for individuals after death. In social circles, the Sadducees were the elitist. They were the aristocrats. The Pharisees were more the middle class. Uh, they associated with the people. The people could relate to them. The Sadducees' center of power was in the temple at Jerusalem. It's where Rome gave them the power. The Pharisees, on the other hand, controlled the synagogues. That's where they taught. They were the lawyers. They understood the law, so they taught the law. The Sadducees were very friendly with Rome, again, because Rome was accommodating to them because they were like, yeah, Rome, come in. You know, you can set up this, you can set up this. They were okay with the Hellenization or the Greek culture that was coming in. Uh, you see it mentions the Hellenists in the scripture many times. Um. When it came to Jesus, though, the Sadducees were concerned with losing their power from Rome. They didn't care the stuff he was arguing about with the Pharisees because, quite honestly, they didn't believe what he was arguing about anyway. But the Pharisees were concerned about losing their religion. 
So when you look at it, when it came down to it, both these shepherds of Israel, Sadducees and Pharisees, they didn't want to lose their specific power and influence over the flock of Israel. So both of these shepherds would wail when the Romans conquered Jerusalem and killed, and we know they killed 1,100,000 Jews. And they sent 97,000 of them into slavery throughout the Roman Empire. We get that from Josephus. Now, those are the two views. I was leaning towards the first one, but I actually lean towards the second one now. Uh, It just seems to fit with the whole chapter and the context of the first coming of the Messiah, because that's really what the whole thing is about up until the very end. Now, in the rest of chapter 11, we see two causes of destruction. These false shepherds leading the people into rejecting their Messiah, the true shepherd. And the second reason is Israel's acceptance of a false shepherd. Verses 4 through 6 says, This is what the Lord my God says. Shepherd the flock marked for slaughter. Their buyers slaughter them and go unpunished. Those who sell them say, praise the Lord, I am rich. Their own shepherds do not spare them. For I will no longer have pity on the people of the land, declares the Lord. I will give everyone into the hands of their neighbors and their king. They will devastate the land and I will not rescue anyone from their hands. So verses 4 through 6 here are God instructing Zechariah to act out the next prophecy. If you look in scripture in the Old Testament, there are many times in the, in the New Testament where God has his prophets use an action sermon. They will, uh, for example, Ezekiel was supposed to cook food using human dung, human feces. And then he said, Lord, I really don't want to do that. Can I just use cow dung instead? It was a step up. But why would God ask him to do that? Ezekiel wanted to demonstrate to Judah the desperation of the siege that was about to happen to them when Babylon came to circle the city. They were going to be reduced to cooking their food. This is not just during the siege, but when they were carried away, reduced to cooking their food over human waste. And to Jews, this would be an abomination because it would be make their food unkosher. You could cook over cow dung and that would be okay, but human feces was not good. It's still not good. But that was the picture. And Ezekiel was good at these, these acting prophecies. He did many of them. Now, in the New Testament, we have another example. And this man's name was Agabus. And Agabus went to the Apostle Paul. It's about Acts 21. He took Paul's belt and he bound himself with Paul's belt. And he did it to show what would happen to Paul if he continued to go to Jerusalem. And it, it came true, but there were these acting prophecies in the Bible. Now, Zechariah has a couple of them. The first one is here. Zechariah is told to acquire a flock and take care of it. And it was a flock where he took special care of certain oppressed uh, and poor of the flock, as those sheep that needed special treatment. Uh, so Zechariah acts out this prophecy, feeding a literal flock. I don't know the size of the flock. It doesn't say. But he takes care of this flock, and it represents the people of God. And it represents... Well, I'm sorry. As the shepherd Zechariah represents the Lord, shepherding this flock, it's also going to represent in the fulfillment how God is eventually going to let go of his flock to judgment. 
Now, this first play acting represents the Messiah's first coming. Now, the flock representing Israel has been the flock representing Israel has been abandoned by their owners, the buyers, which would be Rome at this time. Their own shepherds would be the religious leaders or the sellers. That would be the Pharisees and the Jews. I'm sorry, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, while we have this rejection by man in verse 5, which is the buyers and the sellers, we see a rejection by God in verse 6. It says, I will give everyone into the hands of their neighbors and their king. Now, this would seem to cause a question. Now, who was their king at the time? You would think that it was God, right? Because God has always been the king of Israel. God's ideal government is with him in charge as the king. And that's what they tried to begin with when they first became a nation. But it's interesting in John nineteen fifteen that when Pilate asks them, am I going to crucify your king? And they said, no, we have no king but Caesar. And I think that's interesting because it's prophesied beforehand. And you know what? They had these Old Testament scriptures. They had all of this stuff. It even says when Jesus entered Jerusalem uh, in Matthew, he said, if only you had known the time of your visitation. If only they had looked at Zechariah 9.9, they would have seen him coming on the donkey. They would have been able to compare the difference between Alexander the Great. And they knew these things. It's not like they had a lot of fiction to read at the time. They only studied the Bible or their scriptures and the history that surrounded it. They didn't have anything else to do. I mean, they had other cultural things. But there was not a lot of extracurricular reading aside from the facts and the history that they had. They should have known. But again, it says that they were veiled. Their, their eyes were veiled. And it was partially because of these false shepherds who were there. Who again, were in it for a political game, gain or they simply didn't want to lose their religious power. But they said their king was Caesar. Now, in verses 4 through 7, the word shepherd is used in the NIV, which is correct. It also, in the King James Version, uses the word feed. It says shepherd the flock or feed the flock is used, which is also correct. Because the word, the original word, is not just of the shepherd guiding the flock. But what did a shepherd do? The shepherd guided the flock to the lush fields where they would feed from. So he would guide them and shepherd them to the places where they would be fed. It's where they gained nourishment. And again, Zechariah here is symbolic of Jesus shepherding Israel. When he first came, he was teaching them. He was shepherding them. He was giving them the word. He was nourishing them in the word. The sheep, however, were not having it. There's a certain point in Jesus' ministry at the end of chapter 12 of the book of Matthew where they attribute Jesus' miracles to that of demons, and they basically reject the Messiah. At that point, he starts speaking to them in parables, and he's no longer openly among them. Now, it's at this point, Israel being fed was essentially ceased. He was very blatant. He was more open at the time before they rejected him. But because of their rejection of him, their judgment was come to come now. And again, that would be in the ultimate fulfillment of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Now for us, in this specifically, what reasons do we give God when he gives us instructions to be involved in his work? Now, 
a lot of us do in this church many things. This is a very active church. It's not a large church, but it's an active church. And I think God blesses us immensely with the things that we do and the things that we take part of. Because for a small church, we're very involved everywhere. Uh, Many times a lot more than some bigger churches. But when God gives us a command in Scripture, do we follow it? Or do we simply consider it ideal we may eventually get to? Or if he's put a calling on our heart, are we following it? We're all called to do something specifically. And it doesn't have to be a big thing. Many people are called to do, it seems like, half a dozen things. Other people are called to do one or two things. It doesn't really matter the quantity. It's the quality that you're putting into what God has called you to do. Israel was called to follow God. They were called to see who their Messiah was, and they rejected it. We need to make sure that when God has called us to do something, we're following it to the best of our ability. Now, verses 7 through 9. So I shepherded the flock marked for slaughter, particularly the oppressed of the flock. Then I took two staffs and called one favor and the other union, and I shepherded the flock. In one month, I got rid of the three shepherds. The flock detested me, and I grew weary of them. And I said, I will not be your shepherd. Let the dying die and the perishing perish. Let those who are left eat one another's flesh. Now, Zechariah shepherd. Zechariah shepherded, carrying the two instruments of a shepherd. One is a staff, or what would be used as a crook. It'd be that circular, circular or the, the hook thing. And that's used to guide the sheep. He would use it to guide it to the, shepherds, the pastures. If one got wayward, he would use it and grab it by the neck and pull it back. The other one was a rod that was used for discipline. Or to fight off those who would harm the sheep. And you can, if you remember Psalm 23, it says, Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. So the one staff he called favor. The other staff he called union. The staff favor was for protection of the flock, while the staff called union was for keeping the flock together and protecting its unity. Now it says, I got rid of the three shepherds. Now in Zechariah's day, it may not have been any literal shepherd. But again, as he was play-acting the Messiah's first coming, it probably referred to, in Jesus' ministry, in the context of his ministry, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes. And Jesus denounced these three in Matthew 23. He goes on to say, I will not be your shepherd. And upon Messiah's rejection, as I said, he rejects them for a time. And we're in that time right now, which is called the time of the Gentiles. Now he says, what, let what is dying die. Now in bringing judgment by letting the dying die, God is merely withdrawing his hand of protection. And this is a foreshadowing of what happened when Israel rejected their Messiah. Now it says, let those who are left eat one another's flesh. This happened at the destruction of Jerusalem. I have a quote here, but I'm not going to read it. It's from Josephus. When they were surrounded in Jerusalem by the Romans, they were to the point where they were boiling leather and eating it. And it got to the point where they were so hungry that a mother looked at her son and said, I can't stand to have you grow up in a world where we're just going to be in slavery anyway. So she took her son and she killed him and she boiled him and she ate him. She ate half of him, actually. 
And then what happened is the zealots that were running around the city looking for food, who were the cause of the Romans coming to begin with, they smelled that she was roasting something or boiling something and said, hey, we know you've got meat. We want part of it. So she said, yeah, I did. I roasted my son. And they were so repulsed by that that they left. And they didn't eat it. And from what he wrote, it sounds like she consumed the rest of him. But anyway, that actually happened. Those things happened. Now, verses 10 and 11 says, Then I took my staff called favor and broke it, revoking the covenant I had made with all the nations. It was revoked on that day, and so the oppressed of the flock who were watching me knew it was the word of the Lord. The breaking of the staff called favor represents God removing his hand of protection. As I said, God removed his hand of protection. That was his judgment. Now, it says revoking the covenant I made with the nations. This is probably not the best translation. It's not the nations of the world. It's a specific nation or people. If it was the nations of the world, the Hebrew would be um, what we would say is goyim. It's what the Jews call Gentiles, the goyim. But the the word is actually am, and I can't pronounce it. And it does refer to a specific tribe in Israel. It refers to the tribes of Israel. So he's breaking his covenant with Israel because they've broken it with him. And the oppressed of the flock here, it's referring to the humble or the godly remnant that's left. God always has a remnant. And in this case, it's those who, like in Elijah's day, they didn't bow the knee to any idol. But in this day, these people who did not submit to the Jewish leadership and their false shepherding, but they followed God. Now it says they were watching me and they knew it was the word of the Lord. In 66 AD, the Romans backed off of the siege of Jerusalem. But the Christian believing Jew, or sorry, the believing Jews in Jerusalem saw what was happening, remembered Zechariah and said, we need to leave. And so in 66 AD, between 66 and 68 AD, 100,000 Christian Jews left the city and went and dwelt in a city or the region of Pella, which was on the other side of the Jordan. And then the siege was begun again in 68. And at that point, no one escaped from the city. Now, verses 12 to 14 says, If I told them, if you think it best, give me my pay, but if not, keep it. So they paid me 30 pieces of silver. And the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, the handsome price at which they valued me. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them to the potter at the house of the Lord. Then I broke my second staff called Union, breaking the family bond between Judah and Israel. So in the action sermon that Zechariah is acting out, keep in mind he's God's representative, he's the good shepherd. And thus as we finish the verse, we see that this prophecy of the Messiah plays out and how it relates to his betrayal. We find in these three verses the value that was placed on the good shepherd, which was the Messiah. It was 30 pieces, and we've all heard that, we're all familiar with it. It's what he received when he asked his employer, or the leadership, for his wages for shepherding the flock. And 30 pieces of silver sounds like a lot, but it's actually the most insignificant amount that you can get for a dead slave. 
So they say, you know what, Messiah, what we value, your ministry, is about the price of a dead slave. It wasn't a useful slave, it wasn't anything, it was a dead slave. It's what you had to replace a dead slave with. It was nothing. That's what they counted the Messiah's ministry as. And of course, if you look at the, what is it, verse 13, it says, the handsome price at which they valued me. That is intended as sarcasm for that very reason. Because it wasn't a good price, it was the worst that they could do. Now, this speaks, speaks prophetically of Jesus that we know, we know, who was contemptuously betrayed by the leadership using Judas. Now, it says, throw it to the potter. And Zechariah is told to take these 30 pieces of silver and throw it to the potter's area of the temple. And this act was fulfilled by Judas in Matthew 27. Now, what's something of note here, and I, this is also very interesting. The 30 pieces of silver paid to Judas by the chief priests would have been paid out of the temple treasury. The money for the temple treasury was supposed to be used to buy sacrifices. So what did the Jews inadvertently do? The Jews, the chief priests more specifically, they purchased the sacrifice that would wash away the sins of the world. Jesus Christ. And I think that's fascinating. It is everything that God works together in scripture. You know, when I was reading through the chapter the first couple of times, you know, it's hard always sometimes to piece it together because God is, is trying to give us a, a broad picture sometimes. But when you look at it, the intricate details, everything, Jesus fulfilled the law to the last letter, even to the point where he was the sacrifice that was purchased for the people that washed away all the sins to the very smallest detail. That's, that's my actual favorite part in this chapter. But everything, how God worked everything out. And you can, we can look back now. We have the privilege of looking back and seeing history fulfilled up to this point. And there's so much, not just in Zechariah, but all the prophets. You look back and go, look how this was fulfilled. Look how this was fulfilled. And you, they have books showing specifically how everything was fulfilled. And all those things do because we can look back on them, is encourage our faith to know that we have a more sure word than everybody else did. The, the Islam doesn't have prophecy in the Quran. No other book, religious book in the world, has something that we can look to and go, I can place my confidence in this. There's nothing more valuable or accurate than this. Now, he says, Then I broke my second staff called Union. This signified the flock to be scattered and their unity as a nation destroyed. And in 70 AD, they were. It was, like I said, 1,100,000 were killed. 97,000 were scattered. There were still some left in the land, but a majority of them were just everywhere. Now, verses 15 to 17. Then the Lord said to me, Take again the equipment of a foolish shepherd. For I am going to raise up a shepherd over the land who will not care for the lost or seek the young or heal the injured or feed the healthy, but will eat meat of the choice sheep tearing off their hooves. Woe to the worthless shepherd who deserts the flock. May the sword strike his arm and his right eye. May his arm be completely withered, his right eye totally blinded. This is the second play acting that he does in this chapter. It's three verses long. But instead of the role of the good shepherd, he's now in the role of the false shepherd. And it's interesting to note 
that in John 5.43, Jesus says, I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. But if another comes in his own name, him you will receive. And this has uh, three interesting viewpoints, all future. The first is, I'll finish up in a few minutes. 132 AD, Simon bar Hakba led a second Jewish revolt against Rome. He was declared by his chief supporting rabbi as the Messiah. Most Jews, with the exception of those who were believers, followed him. He made his last stand around 135 AD and was basically defeated by the Romans completely. And at this point, the Romans thoroughly destroyed the land. And then they renamed it Palestine after the Philistines, which is one of Israel's most noted Old Testament adversaries. Now that's one view, because he was a false shepherd and he was accepted by the people, except the believers. The second view is that the foolish shepherd embraced by Israel was partially fulfilled in their choice of Barabbas. When they asked for someone from, to be released, they asked for Barabbas. I don't necessarily hold to that one, but it's another view that's out there. The third one is that it is the Antichrist that the Jews will accept as their Messiah for a time in the end. And this is supported by Daniel 9.27. It says, I will raise up a shepherd in the land. The foolish shepherd is allowed and appointed by God as judgment because his people forsook the true shepherd. And this was fulfilled in Israel's rejection of Jesus, again, as I mentioned. But even though God appointed this false shepherd, he's destined for judgment still because this shepherd still chose to uh, deceive the people. Now it says a sword shall be in his right arm and against his right eye. The worthless shepherd feels the sword of God's judgment himself against his arm and right eye. Now the arm expresses strength and the eye expresses intelligence when you look at uh, symbology in the Bible. So this will be a harsh blow against the worthless shepherd. And you know what? In Revelation 13, we're told that the Antichrist will suffer these, these exact wounds. So when I look at these, it's possible that Barabbas and Simon were precursor false shepherds. And there have been many false shepherds since Jesus who've tried to claim leadership over the Jews. But I believe this culminates in the Antichrist. And we look at the Old Testament and the prophets. And it's easy to say, why does, why does it matter? You know, yeah, that's cool. It happened. But again... The whole point of Zechariah is God's sovereignty, that he's in control. He's in control of our lives. Every blessing that we have, every time we get a trial, God's there. It's his sovereignty. He's in control of it. We don't ever have to think about those things and worry. And God is continually showing the Jews, look, why are you constantly worrying? And they have a whole history now. I mean, they're the most attested people group in history. We have a more thorough knowledge of the history of Israel than any other group in history. And they have this to look at. And, and they're veiled, again, most of them. But we're not. We can look at it and see what God has done and use this as a confidence, as I said, for a sure word of prophecy. We have this. We can look back and see what was fulfilled. But because we can look back and see what was fulfilled, we can look at what hasn't been fulfilled yet and go, I wonder when this is going to happen. We can be excited about it. Every time something happens in the Middle East, I don't know whether it's in the Bible or not, but I go, okay, we're inching closer. And if we're inching closer, it says in 1 John, we should be considering how we're living today. 
So when we look at prophecy, we can go, okay, am I living as they're living in a state of sin or non-expectation? Or am I living in such a way that I should be expecting the Messiah to come at any moment? To live in expectation of that day. And I sincerely hope that we're all living in expectation of that day. And, you know what, read through this stuff on your own at home too. This is, no, I don't always think I expound it as clearly as I'd like. But it's so fascinating to read it and to see what God has done. And if he's going to do these things in their lives, what else can he do through our lives? Because the same spirit that lived in them, that spoke through Zechariah, that spoke through Joshua the high priest in the book, or Zerubbabel, who worked through him, that same God is going to work through us if we let him, if we relinquish using our own power and let the spirit work through us instead. Let's pray. Lord, I do thank you for your word. And I do love so much how you've worked through it. And the encouragement that you've given me through it. I pray that it would encourage others also. And Lord, I pray that each of us would live in such a way of expectation in the day of your return. And Lord, even if we fall each day, may we continue to have the perseverance to get back up and say, oh, I made a mistake, but I'm going to keep looking forward. Lord, help us to look forward. Help us to be mirrors of your love and mirrors of your truth. In Jesus' name, amen.